Uh, my name's Noor Lake, and I'm uh, the Global South Visiting Fellow at TORCH, which is the, um, the Oxford Centre for Research in the Humanities um, here just up the road. And I work on identity and politics, and I've, I've lived, in, I lived in Damascus for a year, learning Arabic a long time ago. And, um, and I've also done some work on the Middle East. I, I'd um, seen, I mean, as soon I just started my fellowship and I knew that I wanted to, working on the theme of identity and politics, that I wanted to bring Hal and, and his film here. Um, and I thought the way we'd um, sort of structure our next 45 minutes together was to really just ask um, Fiona and Hal a couple of questions and then open it up to the audience so we can have a more of an interactive discussion. Um, so I know that I imagine we all want to talk quite a bit about um, the film as well as, as um, Syria, but I thought that perhaps we'd begin at the beginning, which is with Antigone. And I wanted to ask Fiona if you could give us a sense of the world in which um, Antigone was first produced, and then also how it actually reverberates through history because you have we've had adaptations of it um, that have changed over centuries over time and place um, Nelson Mandela acted in a version of it whilst he was on Robin Island um, there's the Jean Anouy adaptation in occupied France so just to be great to hear a bit more about Antigone well first can I just thank you Nur, for bringing or enabling us all to, to watch this quite extraordinary film. And for me, maybe the main power of it came from the fact that this was really a commentary upon the power of the play rather than in any way an, an attempt to reconstruct the mm. play. And um, you asked me to begin in the fifth century BCE, the world of, of Antigone, but I actually almost believe that not only is that impossible, <laughs> but um, it's important in some ways to begin um, round about 1800, because I think the way we think about it, the way we attempt to reconstruct the fifth century BCE, uh, to a large extent depends on perhaps the most important reading ever of this play, and that is the reading by the German philosopher Hegel, who, in a way, however controversial his readings are, he claims that there is a legitimate claim by both Antigone and Creon, that they are equally legitimate claims. Um, in Creon's case, for the state, and in Antigone's uh, case, for the family. Um, that to a large extent, however, difficult it is for us today, I think, to to take Hegel's reading seriously. I think for us, um, as indeed to a large extent the majority of, of, of those in the film felt as well, that this is really Antigone's story and we wish very much, not, not least in a kind of post um, or proto and indeed now kind of post-feminist uh, um, world, we find it very difficult if one knows the play well, not to hear often deeply misogynistic kind of comments coming out of Creon's mouth. 
However, and now don't worry, I'm going to go back to the 5th century BCE, um, there is a very real sense in which, at least for the first part of the play, that as far as um, authorities, and I can see a few in the room, um, uh, to back me up on this, um, at least Creon's position is the position that we would understand the majority of male uh, members of the audience would have sympathised with, and not least at moments of crisis, the need and indeed the auntie figure brilliantly brought that out in the play, uh, the woman who was um, cast as Creon. You have to take control and you have to make sure, and this is Creon's position at the beginning of the play, that um, the state is not about you know, family, uh, nepotism, uh, that it's all about, um, in, in Creon's case, uh, respecting the gods who, who represent the state. But of course, increasingly during the play, and I think we're asked to see, uh, and I think even the chorus of elders who are very sympathetic to, to Creon, I think at least uh, three quarters of the way through the play, they make it very, very clear that Creon his principles may be right, but he's clearly failed to live up to his principles. And at that point, there is no doubt. We've never doubted the validity of Antigone's principles, as indeed we were reminded in the play. Burying, burying the dead is, is, is God's business. I think that was how it was described in the film. Um, we are not just led to believe that by the events as they unravel. We are told that by... Um, by Tiresias, the, the seer, the religious centre of the play. So, um, so to some extent, I felt that, you know, why we are engaged with Antigone today is we can read it in so many ways and um, <coughs> we may resist Hegel's reading, but in some ways the idea that claims are legitimate, um, uh, however much the legitimacy is called into question at various points and increasingly during the course of the play. I thought that was brilliantly brought out in the film. And in some ways, that's why I would say that the film was an, you know, a, a kind of wonderful commentary on not only maybe how Antigone is resonating at the moment uh, amongst um, uh, uh, you know, refugees in, in Beirut, but also to, to a large extent about the wider readings and indeed perhaps the reception of that play mm. since its very first mm. performance. Mm. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd love to ask you and Hal both a bit more about the characters, both in, in the play and then, of course, the women themselves. But before we get to that, I'd like to just pivot to, um, to, to your, to Hal, to your, um, to the process of the workshop itself. And I think you were quite influenced by the theatre of the oppressed. <coughs> It'd be great to hear just a bit more about how, I mean, through your foundation, how the Open Art Foundation, how you began working on Antigone, um, how you use the theatre of the oppressed and their principles, and, and just your engagement um, with, with the women. Right. Um, thank you, Noren. Thank you, Fiona. And thank you all for coming. Um, <coughs> so the... We first met in Jordan um, in 2013 when I was working on a project quite similar to this. Um, it was a very different play. It was 
Trojan Women by Euripides, and um, it was a different group of women, urban refugees who were living in Amman. Um, and if they're urban refugees not living in a camp, they have a bit more uh, money um, than your average refugee coming into Jordan. And Lebanon, it's probably similar if you're living in a camp, uh, especially the biggest camp that was built in 1948 for Palestinians. Um, you're, you don't have a whole lot of cash, at least uh, relative to your fellow countrymen. Um, so we were dealing with similar populations when we started. In Jordan, um, I was brought in just because I had worked at a theater in North London that had done a lot of political theater. Um, and I was asked with my Syrian co-producer, Itab, uh, who was the co-director on this, to run the workshop. Um, and that was uh, directed by a man named Omar Abusada, and um, the dramaturg on the pro on the project, as you, the same man you saw with the ponytail, in the film Muhammad Al Attar. He and Omar uh, together um, uh, listened to the women's stories during rehearsal, and then uh, would use various techniques from theater of the oppressed um, to try to. I guess, dramatize the stories in a way that would make them uh, kind of presentable on stage in a way that might be more, uh, um, I don't know, I, I, I want to shy away from entertaining, but uh, it is theater after all. Um, so that was the aim. Theater of the Oppressed is, was started in the 1970s by a Brazilian theater maker named Augusto Boal. Um, following on from his country's own dictatorship that um, uh, he thought there were victims from the dictatorship that would benefit from this style of theater, which essentially gave voice to the voiceless. Um, people that had been oppressed by the regime and would um, had, didn't really know how to express it, didn't, didn't feel like they were able to come out on the, in the everyday mediums and do it, and even if they f had the confidence, they didn't necessarily have the tools or the language. So there were things that there were aspects of theater of the oppressed that have nothing to do with language, that aren't, language is not used at all, as you saw in one of the scenes where Fedwa, uh, Auntie Fedwa, she stages a checkpoint crossing and um, uses um, some of the women to act as guards and uh, as members of her family and her mind. Um, the, there's a specific direction to not use words, but to try to express what is happening in your head with uh, by by blocking it, by um, creating the scene. And this is just one of the many tools that Boal created in order to um, get people to express express themselves in different ways and try to communicate the ideas that they were struggling with um, in ways that sort of we might not consider in our con conventional everyday lives or even in conventional theater. Um, the foundation, um, we don't necessarily, we won't necessarily continue to use those techniques in all of our work, but it was, it was a sort of a very good launching pad for us to, um, in the type of work that we wanted to do, which was essentially to work with marginalized communities in various parts of the world um, and tried to find a way to connect with them. We have the kids of the women that we worked with in Beirut. We ran <coughs> art therapy programs uh, that was mainly painting and sketching. Um, 
Uh, we have the cookbook, which um, a lot of the women in the film, they wrote recipes and then combined the recipes with their stories of how these recipes came about from their childhoods and from many generations ago. The idea being that everything can be taken away from you, but the smells and the tastes of food will always take you back home. Um, and with this film, um, you know, it, it was it was sort of a depiction of the workshop process, but it was more about the women themselves and their lives and, you know, the way that Mona talks at the end about how this is not, they're not, you know, uh, they're not exceptional people, they're just, um, they're just ordinary people and um, they deserve um, a platform and a voice just as much as everyone else. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. So, uh, and I can talk more about what we're doing at the moment and in the future a bit later on, maybe. Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, what was interesting to me is that, of course, you had different people in the film. I mean, different women identify with different characters, and I mean, Auntie Fatwa says that she feels she identifies with Crown because order above all is the most important thing. And then, of course, you had um, one of the women identifying. Um, uh, with um, with Antigone saying that how she she felt for the first time that she was doing something and that she feels she had a sense of of purpose and um, I'm just quite of course Sophocles is sort of playing with all of these dualities I mean I was interested in how Ismini um, Antigone's sister she doesn't come up as often in this I mean that they talk more about Antigone and Creon and um, I was. I, I met uh, Omar Abusada, who you've worked with in, in Jordan when he was working on, on the Trojan women, and I remember him saying to me that how um, the, he, the, during that period he was coming over from Damascus to Amman um, every weekend, I think, and he said that what had happened in Damascus was that everybody had, had, had left because you were forced to take sides, and that's what both the government and the militias wanted, that there would be no independent space at all. And it sort of reminded me of what sort of Trotsky said about how you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And it's the same with these women, as well as, as all the characters in Antigone, that each of every single person there has to take a position. And so how, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear from you a bit more about about um, the characters and the positions these women took. And Fiona, from you, I'd actually just, I mean, I read um, the wonderful um, <coughs> piece you have in, the, in a book on um, Antigone and, and um, its reception. Um, you've written about the Irish Antigone, where, of course, again, you see how people's identifications change. I mean, with Creon, with Antigone. So I'd, I'd just love to hear a bit more about about that, actually, in terms of the characters. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, uh, <coughs> as you say, I think I think we only heard Ismini, Ismini mentioned once, once in the film. yeah. And it was um, one of the women who said, I, I used to be Antigone. Uh, sorry, I used to be Ismini, and now I'm yeah. Antigone. Um, and it, as you've <coughs> sort of maybe suggested, I mean, what strikes me as as very interesting um, about the rather recent reception of of Antigone in Ireland is that having and, and what interested me, I mean, this interest generally in the play undoubtedly dates from. Um, 
the, the middle of the trouble, so from 1980 onwards, there is a huge debate in the north of Ireland um, that directly involves Sophocles' play mm -hmm. and then leads to a, a number of, of, of versions. But what has become very interesting, and I, and I think that tradition can be seen right back to 19th century uh, productions where clearly Antigone is is emblematic of 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 of, of Ireland um, and um, is rising up against um, the kind of imperial uh, power represented by Creon in the play, and to a large extent that was absolutely true until I'd say around about two thousand, and then as everyone in this room no doubt knows, Ireland changed very dramatically and uh, and. From then on, playwrights seem to be doing something very different with Creon, and I think you see that in Seamus Heaney's version, but you see it um, in various versions by, by, by other writers as well. And there is a new interest, uh, a very searching focus on the character of Creon. Mm. And, you know, this is a play about Creon for the second part of the play, really, and I... I notice the ending of the film very significantly says that it, it kind of ends where Sophocles ends, which is Creon's future or no future. And he is merely, I think the phrase here was something like a ghost of a man. Mm -hmm. And um, this ghost of a man has become the dominant focus in these Irish versions, which um, again goes back to this idea that in a way, it's a play that is all about shifting perspectives and um, our emotional um, uh, trajectory is always with Antigone. But of course, after Antigone and, and her death, the focus in almost a very, I think we could say Shakespearean way, is absolutely on this deeply, deeply flawed leader who has failed completely to live up to the role. And um, whatever one thinks about that final scene in Sophocles' play, um, it, as the bodies kind of proliferate around this fallen man, um, he, as again we heard in the film, he has no life. <coughs> there is nothing left. So um, I, and, and, and I therefore have some considerable sympathy uh, and interest in these new Irish versions because it's not only because Ireland's changed, but also because I think they also get to the heart of the play. And I therefore also found this, this, this film very interesting because it didn't let us only think about, um, you know, uh, the Antigones, the stories of Antigones. It also asked us to think very much about Creon's story as well. Um. How the women identified? Well, it was um, difficult because it was a broad range of ages, um, from about uh, eighteen to sixty mm -hmm. in the workshop. Uh, we had about th between thirty-five and fifty women, depending on the day that showed up, um, and for the most part, the younger women around sort of. 21 years old or younger wanted to be 
Antigone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then as they got older, they were sort of just going with the flow. Um, but p- one of the sort of principles of theater of the oppressed is that there is no one star, is that everybody um, has equal time and equal voice. Um, so uh, it was sort of actually kind of convenient that characters, women, ch- changed how they identified over the course of the project. Um, and that's also uh, was not their own um, ego or anything. It was more through discussion and through uh, understanding of the politics of the play, but also where they stood in relation to each other. When they first got in, they, you know, they all thought that their story, nobody could top their story in terms of uh, horror. And um, for the most part, it, they would sit there and they would think, well, actually I thought my situation was bad, but uh, that's a lot worse. And it created a solidarity in the group. Um, and they became very close uh, friends and their kids became very close as, as a result of it as well. Um, so their, how they identified uh, was mixed. I mean, in terms of their the broader picture and the politics of Syria, they... Um, they generally didn't get too involved in it. Um, they thought very practically. Um, they felt that, you know, some supported Assad, some supported uh, Free Syrian Army, and some supported ISIS. And that was generally uh, was simply a result of practical circumstances. If the Free Syrian Army burst into their house and told them all to get out, mm-hmm. and they were in the middle of an assault on Assad's. Uh, uh, group, then obviously that that family is going to be against the Free Syrian Army. It's uh, it was a pretty it was all pretty straightforward as far as they were concerned. Um, they weren't too concerned with the broader questions. They just wanted to mm. get home, mm. which they realized mm. more and more. Mm. I mean, this was 2014, so many of them had only arrived in the yeah. previous six months. So they were still coming to grips with the idea mm. that they might not be going back. And mm. Obviously, they haven't. Mm. Well, I mean, what I love about the film is just how there's sort of so much humanity in it and it just sort of comes through and it swings between sorrow and laughter. And that's what makes it incredibly powerful. So I could ask you questions sort of for the rest of the evening, but I want to open it up um, to the rest of I mean, to the audience. Um, would anybody, please? I was wondering where you are working now. Where I'm working? <coughs> Palestine, for instance, or Gaza? Uh, yes, very important places to work. I'm not currently in Palestine or Gaza, unfortunately. Um, I live in Boston. Um, and uh, I am working with, um, uh, with the homeless community in Boston. Um, so the, the United States and Canada has a huge... I'm American. I was raised in England, but I'm American. Um, the United States has a huge homeless ep- epidemic, um, and if you're homeless in the United States, it tends to mean that you are, you've suffered from mental and physical uh, abuse uh, somewhere along the way. You're probably disabled. You're illiterate. You probably have an addiction problem, um, and you're homeless. So, um, we have one as well. sorry. We also have the homeless. Yes, of course, in England as well. Um, they're just. Uh, many more people in the United States, that's all I mean. Um, and so um, 
so yeah, so I'm uh, developing a project there, which is going to have a similar shape in terms of a drama workshop. Um, and then there is a talk of a documentary about one of the members of the community um, who has a particularly compelling story, but um, I can't, but there's nothing to confirm about that yet. Yeah, please go ahead. What was the effect on these women taking part in the play after it was over? Did it change their lives? Very much so. Um, I would say, I mean, it changed their lives in many ways. They're, I would say about four or five of them wanted to be actresses. Um, this was also about two years before the uh, European migration crisis, so their, um, their, all, their lives changed dramatically at that point in 2016. But, um, but for the sort of two years before that, um, yeah, they many wanted to be actresses. All of them wanted to have careers uh, of one type or another. They wanted to work. They didn't want to be dependent on their husbands anymore. Um, they had a sort of sense of confidence and awareness, and um, and they liked themselves, uh, which was I can't say was the case before. Um, many were depressed and very hard on themselves and very angry at themselves blaming themselves and that was that had stopped being the case um, there was just a noticeable difference in their confidence and and general happiness as well as their drive to uh, to work and their husbands husbands thankfully I didn't see much of um, <laughs> they came to the they came to the performances um, which uh, was good in some ways, was not so good in others. It, the women whose husbands were there on a particular night, <coughs> how they performed on stage was very different to how they would normally. They were almost, they would look at their husbands in the audience during the show and would kind of apologize with their bodies and with their expressions um, for what they were doing and saying. But they still did it. Um, but it was uh, it was hard for them and uh, hard for some of us to watch yeah. as well. But but good and important, I think. Um, How by and large. How long did the uh, actual workshops take? How many days? Uh, this one was about two and a half months. Um, it took about two months to set up, and then we stayed out there for two and a half more. And did the girl take a? hijab off right at the end when she was sitting on the wall and she said oh no I'm not taking it off because my hair's not right. Did <laughs> she take it off? It's funny you ask that. We had our European uh, premiere in Norway at the end of March and Hiba doesn't wear the hijab anymore. Um, she lives um, she lives by herself but next door to her sister and um, the first photo I saw of her uh, without the hijab, she had pink hair, but it's now <laughs> black and um, she's, as you saw at the end, she's studying Swedish and trying to find a nice Swedish man. Mm -hmm. I, I think the lady there had a question, yes. Thank you so much. It looked as if there wasn't music used in the production, although music was obviously quite a large part of the film, but when the women were moving and speaking, maybe it's just that you didn't film the musical part, I just wondered what happened. No, there was no music. Um, it was a directorial um, choice, and um, I think there was, um, I mean, I can't really speak to the artistic choices for the play, 
I think that um, the film, the stories that you hear on film are the stories that were told on stage. Um, Mona, the narrator, what she says at the end about we are not princesses, she was the narrator of the play on stage. And, um, and so, and that was also everything that Mona says as the narrator, she wrote. Um, it was about two weeks before the first performance that we realized she'd been keeping a journal and um, she was a fantastic writer. And um, so she had written all of that without any assistance or um, uh, encouragement at all. Um, so with the, um, the production, one of the reasons why we didn't portray the, um, have, it, have the play on film a bit more was just because of that. In my opinion, watching theater on film is not that interesting anyway, but, um, but to have, we have the stories anyway and, and we could add music too. Is it available? I mean, can people who weren't here tonight watch it? Not yet. Um, unless uh, Netflix gives us a large amount of money to distribute it, we're still, we're still looking for a distributor. Um, so we are in the middle of a festival tour um, around the world at the moment, and then hopefully at some point someone along the way will come along and say they want to buy the film, and then we can use the money towards... Um, mm -hmm other serial related projects and then and release the film to the wider public. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I'd just like to ask both of you, because um, obviously you've worked on the Trojan Women project as well, I just wanted to see um, what you thought about um, why or how there's the connection to these um, ancient Greek plays or tragedies to modern day refugee narratives and why? why you think that's important in a theatre? <coughs> Fiona, do you want to go first? Well, I'm, I'm very interested in the work of Omar Abusada, and, and, and they have worked with an, on a number of, of, of Greek tragedies, not just mm -hmm. Antigone and Trojan women, if, if, if I'm right. Um, so I think in this instance, even though there are clearly people like Hal who are you know very interested in I, and I don't mean this is your choice to play but I do know for example one of the producers of the Syrian uh, Trojan Women project uh, was an Oxford classicist so I, sometimes people easily assume that is it some kind of imposition rather than uh, people um, being genuinely interested in well, as as a number of people have have have, have said, um, you know, at least since the Second World War, Greek tragedy is not the preserve of of, 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 of Europe or the Western world. It's very clearly global. But what is not only the kinds of stories that it tells, but also, and maybe particularly helpfully, um, is that it is based upon. Um, a religion that no one today, or very, very few eccentrics, actually believes in, but it is deeply engaged with metaphysical as well as ethical questions. And so, in that sense, I don't know if there's any other kind of theatrical tradition that is as adaptable um, and can speak so readily uh, and, and 
to a large extent, you know, <coughs> reconstruction, <coughs> despite attempts with Greek play traditions to reconstruct, reconstructions are clearly dismal failure. So um, these are texts ready for people to rework and, and, and reconfigure. Um, and a lot of these plays deal, I mean, I don't know if you saw a production of Aeschylus' is, is Suppliant, Suppliants, for example. I mean, that it speaks absolutely to uh, refugee peoples. And um, at the moment, Greek tragedy mm. seems to have... Um, uh, narratives that are very compelling, that are very community-based, and especially involving uh, dispersed communities. Mm. Uh, how? What's the? Sorry. I was going to say. Do you think you know, the the choral dimension is relevant mm. as well in terms of communities, and obviously in terms of a workshop? You know, just gathering a number of people together. Well, I think so, which is, I think, what Boal would have said. And um, clearly, um, I, a lot of theatre makers begin by building ensembles, if I'm right. I mean, even in, uh, in Britain, where that was not part of a, a tradition of, of making theatre until relatively recently. And clearly, if, if, if you're using theatre in some way for therapeutic purposes, I think the chorus is a brilliant place to start. And um, especially when choral sentiments can be shared and distributed around a community and indeed can be rewritten, those sentiments, by individuals within it. You might have a, a main storyline, but the commentary upon it, which is really the choral parts, um, yeah, can change and indeed does change. Mm. How? What about your well, path? Don't... Um Plays like this and Ajax, and weren't they written for the soldiers as a form of therapy when they came back from war as well? Uh, I, I'm looking at Bar I don't know whether they were actually written for a form of therapy, but it's absolutely true that they were written by combatant veterans themselves. Yeah. So right, right. in that sense, and, and they have been used indeed in America with the sort of theatre war pro, uh, programme and so on, yeah. very effectively, yes, to bring together um, people suffering from post-traumatic stress and, 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 and so on. Um, and, um, but whether they were written for those purposes, I mean, I personally, um, I'm looking very much at Barbara, but there are probably <laughs> other classes in the room, would subscribe to the idea that... Um, they are political, broadly speaking, unlike some people in this faculty maybe may not quite agree with that. Um, and that, you know, the playwrights intended that there was some kind of political message that went out. And whether that was about the need, and indeed in many of these plays, the need to bring people together, which is, again, what, you know, we heard very much coming out of, uh, out of the film. Um, if that, I mean, so instead of being about particular individuals, I would say, mm -hmm. indeed, going back to the point about chorus, yeah. is that it is about community yeah. cohesion building and, and the end of, for example, Aeschylus' Oresteia, the one trilogy we do have, that is all about building a community. Mm. Mm. Okay, well, back to this community. We can probably take a couple more questions, and especially if they're students who want to sort of ask a question, please do. Sorry, one more question. Yeah. Um, 
these women you said have started writing their own stories. Um, are they being published or something like that? Did I say they've started writing their own stories? Um, in, in the film, we see them sort of writing that. Yes, but that was what oh. that was their story that they performed on stage. Yeah, okay, okay. So um, they, they have a cookbook, though. Yeah, they have a cookbook. <laughs> the The play itself, um, it's I don't have the rights to it. But Muhammad Al Attar does, and I'm not sure where he is with publishing it as mm. a as a play. But if he did, I think it would make for a compelling read. Mm. Um, one last question, if anybody has one. Okay, well, um, I thank you so much for coming. I have an announcement that I'd like to make, which is um, that Fiona has organized a, a one-day conference plus a performance on classical theater in the Middle East. Maybe I'll just let Fiona tell you all a bit more about it in a couple well, of minutes. Well, at the end of the day, and, and if you, I mean, I, I, if you've been interested well. in the discussion, yeah. yeah, if you've been interested in the discussion, you may well indeed wish to come to the conference in the day but if you're only able to join us in the evening it's a it's friday the the 12th of july we have a, a wonderful uh, lebanese actor called hannah um, hajali who is performing a, a a solo show which she's toured to around europe um, as well as the middle east to great acclaim um called jogging and it's based on euripides medea so um, we're delighted that they're, they're, they're coming over here. And we're very, very delighted they're coming to Oxford. They're also performing as part of uh, the Shoeback uh, Festival uh, in, in London, um, the London Arab Festival. So you're very welcome to come to that in the evening. That, that's a free event. Um, you just need to sign up on Eventbrite. But if you wish to come to the discussion, and mm. Noah will be part of that, and we will be at, at one point as well thinking very much about um, the Syrian uh, refugee um, <coughs> engagements with classical theatre, but also m there'll be sort of more general, not just sort of classicists thinking about how Greek tragedy is being used, but also thinking about what does the classical mean in in an Arab context. Mm. So, mm. Um, and and sorry, I should have said also, there is a panel on on Iran where, as I'm sure many of you mm. know, um, there is very serious engagement with 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 these Greek plays mm. as well. And I should just add that um, although well, we'll wait to hear from Hal about when people can catch the film at the theatre or on Netflix. Um, but this conversation, we can, it'll be uploaded on the Classic <coughs> website as well as on the Torch um, website. And I'd just really like to say a very, very big thank you um, to Hal, um, to Fiona, um, to Lydia, who's there, and Zoe, for, um, well, for all of you for being here and for helping organise this. And thank you to you for coming. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you.